Welcome to the Kook Center Podcast, and here's your host. It's the Krusty Burglar! Oh my god, he's stealing all the burgers! Why are you little? I got you! Oh, oh, it's, it's all just, just an act. Michael Preston. That 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 clip is is literally all I could think about for like most of the second quarter of that football game. It was like the level of beatdown Washington State gave Stanford on Saturday, like we hadn't seen, I think probably since they played Arizona in 2018, that's probably the last time they beat somebody that badly. Um, and even then, I mean, like, you know, it wasn't totally unexpected for them to do that, given where they were and where Arizona wasn't at that time. So from the standpoint of this being more unexpected, it certainly is up there. Um, but wow, what uh, that that is that is not a thrashing. That is not a shellacking. That is a nuking from orbit. That is Stanford peacefully <laughs> orbiting the Earth as like a satellite. And instead of just like sending like a little missile up there, Wazoo decides, you know what? How about a nuclear bomb to take care of one satellite? That's what that is. Uh, Brad Denny from Speak of the Devil is going to join us to talk about the Arizona State Sun Devils for this weekend. Uh, they'll be in Pullman for Parents Weekend. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the basketball team in this segment too. Great opening win uh, against Texas State. They looked really good in that one. Uh, and then we'll aim rather dunder head of the week and ask Michael anything. Great show. Love having Brad back on. It's always such a pleasure to have him on uh, whenever ASU's on the schedule. I think I, I remarked in the interview, like this is our longest running like interview relationship. He's been coming on the show for almost nine or ten years now. So it's uh, it's been a real pleasure to have him back on. Um, I, <laughs> I mean... Where do you where do you even start with with that football game, right? And I mean, I think I said this on Twitter after the game. It was like a lot to really love and a couple of little things to nitpick. We can start with the really nitpicky stuff, which is that yeah, the offensive line didn't play as well in the second half. Uh, the drops from the wide receivers, I think there were I counted at least four in that first half. Not very good. Uh, more. So so officiating. The more I look at it, the more okay, fine. It's whatever. They at least picked up the flag on that really bad PI call in the second half when McKee literally threw the ball away, and they called pass interference. Which I mean, you can call defensive holding if you want to, but you can't call pass interference on a ball that literally gets thrown away. You can't do that. Um, but just way, 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 way too much good in that game. And I think, you know, I had an inkling that Washington State would win that football game. And I think, you know, we've talked about before on this show, a win having stones. A win having, like, big, gritty stones that 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 just seemed like this is a team that responded to some adversity. This is a team that responded after that win, or that loss, excuse me, against Utah, where they were in the game you know, constantly, but just never seemed to do the one thing you needed to do to get over the hump and win. Um, so I think seeing them come out and literally lay 42 points on Stanford in the first half was exceptional. 
did it with a defensive touchdown, forcing an untold number of fumbles. By the way, that's a lot of fumble luck they just wore out um, in that game. Um, Cam Ward looked good. He had a lot of time. The offensive line looked great. Now, losing Jarrett Kingston is going to be very bad. Um, I'm not confident they'll be able to patch that hole um, very well. But the good news is, again, they're in the soft part of the schedule. And we talked about this last week, too. This is that soft part of the schedule that you always kind of knew was coming at the beginning of the season. I think we all looked at the schedule and went, wow, the meat of this in this sandwich is really difficult. It's really hard to go Oregon, Cal, SC on the road, Utah on a Thursday, Oregon State on the road. That's a really tough meat of the schedule. But you always looked at this last third of the season and now you're three quarters of the way through so we're another quarter pull through like I like to do on this. And this team is five and four and a win away from bowl eligibility for the seventh year in a row. I'm not counting 2020. They responded in exactly the way you wanted to see them respond. Played well on defense. You know... I, I, I don't know why Stanford even bothered to run, a ball, run the ball. Nakia Watson coming back, obviously massive for this offense to get their number one option at running back back. I thought he was going to be on a bit of a pitch count um, against Stanford. And I, I don't think he played at all in the fourth quarter. It was all Payne and Schlenbacher. Um, Schlenbaker? Schlenbaker, I think. Javonzi, I know that. Um, <laughs> um, in the second half, in the fourth quarter. Uh, you got to see Matir. In place of Ward. And boy does that kid have wheels. And he's got a good arm as well. So I feel better about if Cam Ward ever gets hurt. Um, you saw athletic plays from the receivers. You saw Robert Farrell have a much better week than he did against Utah. You saw Dejon Stribling have a good week outside of that personal foul. Which by the way I do think that was number two being a little bit chippy um, all throughout the game. You saw Donovan Ollie get back on in the box score with a touchdown. It all just clicked. That first touchdown to Smithson, the creativeness of that play, again, is part of the reason why I think this version of the air raid is so, 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 so dynamic and so interesting to me once Eric Morris can get an offensive line that he can really work with in this offense. I mean, it's, it's a wide receiver motioning into the backfield and three guys out of the backfield and the fullback just pulls to block on a, on a back pass. It's a really cool offense with a lot of options available if you have the right athletes and good blocking. So this was kind of a vision of where this team can go. And I think you saw in that game, again, I don't I'm I'm kind of belaboring the point a little bit um, as we have all year because I've I've seen way too much talk about Cam Ward you know, not being good enough or not being what was expected and all this other stuff. But when you give Cam Ward time to throw the football, again, taking out the drops, he looks good. He picked, he, he ran with the ball when he should have at more times during that game as well. Five rushes for 40 yards. For 38 yards, excuse me. And I can do that because there were no sacks. Great on the offensive line again. Ward tucked it and ran at more appropriate times in that game. Watson had 166 yards on the ground. This team had 306 yards of rushing in that game. 306 yards of rushing in that game. 
Are you three hundred and six yards? I didn't see this, by the way, because I wasn't paying. I, I, you know, I was paying attention at the end of the game, um, but I did not see that. Clearly, looking at the box score, um, Lincoln Victor is the one who took those knees. <laughs> Unless they just no, they gave him to the team. No, that was Lincoln Victor. That was that really bad fumble. We'll forget about that trick play that never should have been ran. They assigned the knees to team, not the quarterback, at least. I'd, I'd, I'd gotten that play out of my brain. It was so nice. Um, so, I think overall, I mean, God, it, you, you just look at a football game like that where there's, you know, three tackles for a loss, four forced, um, four forced fumbles, all of them recovered. One, two, three, four, six passes broken up. I mean, the stat sheet looks bloody exceptional. And again, looking at it one more time, no sacks for Stanford. I know this is not the best defense they're going to see all year um, or have seen all year, but the confidence boost for the offensive line from that has to be incredible that you just gave up no sacks. Everything clicked in that win, and I think maybe we all would have been keyed in on it going that way a little earlier one of my favorite things to do every Monday. By the way, the cre- I've, I've shouted it out a couple of times on this show this year. I'm going to keep doing it. The creative team for the football team, the digital team, is doing such incredible work this year. Everybody on that team, I'm not even going to name any of them because I don't want to leave anybody out. Everybody's doing such an incredible job of that. The creativeness that they're allowed and just kind of like, you know, how much, like even just the fun storytelling, like the Jersey Reveal, letting the equipment team do it. And all the fun stuff they've done this year, it has been such a revelation to watch them work this year. And the investment the school has made in them um, is very worthwhile. So, again, kudos to them. They've done extraordinary work. But watching their highlight video on Monday, you saw Jake Dickert, normally a very reserved Jake Dickert, um, say in the locker room, and I didn't know this about Stanford warming up, was they warmed up in sweatshirts. Now, normally I wouldn't be like, oh, that's weird. But apparently to a football coach, that means you are really not interested in playing this football game. I did not know that. When I played soccer, I warmed up in a sweatshirt all the time. But I also played rec league soccer and didn't play college football at the Division I level. And what Jake Dickert says in the locker room is, I've never seen a team warm up in sweatshirts before. They don't want it. They don't effing want it. And boy, did they not ever not want it. <laughs> and looking back on that game, I'm not taking anything away from Wazoo when I say this. They still beat the ever-loving crap out of Stanford to the tune of 38 bloody points. Okay? Five and a half touchdowns worth of more scoring for them. But that is a team that has just given up. They have just, they are all done, man. And David Shaw, that's six straight. He's lost to Wazoo now. Three different coaches, too. (laughs) I mean, like, Mike Leach, four times in a row. Nick Rolovich once. And now Jake Dickert. Like, what do you do if you're David Shaw and... You're at Stanford, and you cannot, for the life of you, beat Wazoo. 
Like, you cannot do it. That's the stuff that gets coaches at other schools fired. But Stanford is its own unique unicorn, so I I don't even know with them. What a big response from this team. It speaks to the players. It speaks to the coaches that one week after that Utah game, you could have rolled over. But it's very clear there's some buy-in from the players in that locker room with these coaches right now that they've got them believing in themselves that much. And again, it's a testament to everybody still there. Because again, you are in now the softer part of your schedule. The great news is you're home on a Saturday for the first time in a month and a half this weekend. Like I get that they were home um, you know, two weeks ago, but that was a Thursday night crowd. And again, only Thursday night game in the conference this year, and it's in Pullman. Great work. You get a sold-out crowd, juiced-up crowd, 12.30, perfect time for the dads. I know it's parents' weekend. This is still largely dads' weekend. I've already been told by my wife, and yes, ask Sammy anything is coming at some point this year, um, that this will still be, that dads' weekend she gets to come with, but I don't get to come with to mom's weekend. I don't see how that's fair. Um, even though they call it parents' weekend, we're still going to treat it normally, but she still gets to come to dads' weekend? I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get an attorney, and we're going to hammer that out. Your chance right here to get bowl eligible again. And especially in an offseason with a lot of turnover player-wise, new offensive system, new defensive system, a lot of new faces. You're going to lose some of those new faces again in the offseason like Henley and Lee. Okay, But how good this team has looked some weeks, and especially this week. You think of that, about that. This really does seem like a team... And it's so weird to say this about Washington State, but they beat the teams they should and they lose to the teams they shouldn't. Because, you know, outside of that Oregon game where, again, we've talked about it before, where if you looked at the yards per play in that, that was clear that Oregon at some point was going to pull ahead in that football game, or if they didn't, it would truly be quite an anomaly. But this whole season has kind of gone how it should does that make sense to anybody else? Like wins and losses wise, like I don't know. Maybe it maybe it's just me. Like it it always seems like Washington State's good. Every college team is good for a brain fart and good for like a reach up and get somebody you shouldn't. And it it really just seems like this has been to script. And we've said these last four are where you make your hay. So you go out, you beat Oregon State on or Arizona State on Saturday, and you get to six wins. You go down to Tucson the next week, play a Arizona team that's still trying to figure itself out and arguably has the worst defense in the conference this year. And a quarterback who is probably going to want to shove it down your throat a bit. And then you get the Apple Cup at home. But as I always say, I'd always rather have that six win wrapped up before that football game. Because I really don't want to play that football game needing to win it to get to the postseason. Preferably, you've already done that. Take some of the pressure off. That would be nice. We're going to talk to Brad here in a second about the Arizona State Sun Devils, um, a team that you know has had their own problems this year. They fired their head coach. They've switched quarterbacks. They look better offensively. They're still really struggling defensively. So, you know, again, why we talk about this being the easier part of the schedule? Is you're, going to, you're going to play now. Really, as it turns out, UW's defense not very good either. You're going to play four defenses that are really not very good, and it gives your offense a chance to get things right. 
defensively, Arizona State will be more of a test than Stanford was for this defense. But, again, for your offense, you're facing about the same quality of defense here. Basketball-wise, what a great first win. I want to touch on this briefly. Jeff and Craig did a great job on podcasts versus everyone going over it more thoroughly. We always try to leave that to them. They're definitely more the experts in this regard um, than us. But a great 83-61 win over Texas State to to start things. And I, I think the one kind of observation that I had from it, that I took from it, um, was kind of DJ Rodman's presence on that court and how he just kind of... He really seems, this is only one game, but he seems really settled into being the senior on this roster. And how if he can kind of become with Andre Yakimovsky out for a couple of weeks at least, if he can, and even without him out, if he can become this 8-12 to 12 point a night guy, really dependable for a few baskets a night and not kind of, you know, not a defensive specialist or rebounding specialist, but a guy you can count on for some points. I think that's a really big difference maker in this game. You saw the passing from Justin Powell. You saw even Mo Gay's passing much better as well. You saw what an athletic specimen TJ Bamba is. Um, So I'm going to be interested to see DJ Rodman this year. I think that was kind of my one big takeaway from this was that if he's a guy who can you know go out there and be a you know because so far in his career it's 1.7, 6.14.2 points per game. Now, I don't he's averaging, you know, he scored what was it? It was 16 um uh 16 points on Monday night. That's not going to continue. But if he can Keep doing, you know, again, 8 to 12 a night. That's such a huge difference for this basketball team to have a guy like that who you can depend on to come off the bench. He did start on Monday without Yakimovsky, but if you can depend on him to do that, and if Yakimovsky takes that step, I mean, all of a sudden this lineup is even deeper than you thought it is. And your tournament aspirations, they start vibing a lot more than they even did before. So I think that's kind of what I'm going to be watching here over the next you know few weeks as we go through the non-conference schedule with those two conference games sprinkled in um, in early December. A big test against Boise State this Saturday. Boise State is a good team in the Mountain West. And then you get Oregon and Utah um, in early December to start conference playoff. Then UNLV in Vegas. Can't wait to go to that. And then Baylor. You get Baylor. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what this team can do. I'm kind of excited, especially to see where DJ Rodman fits into this. Okay, let's talk to Brad Denny after the break uh, about the Arizona State Sun Devils. He's always so thorough in his knowledge. You guys are going to learn so much um, about ASU as I have. Uh, so when we come back, we'll talk to Brad about Arizona State. Back here on the Coog Center Hour. And the thing I hate most about the Arizona State Sun Devils rotating off our schedule for two years is that we don't get to talk to Brad Denny of Speak of the Devil's podcast. Brad, you've been coming on this show, I think this is our 10th year, and I'm pretty sure it's been like nine or 10 years that you've been coming on the show. You're like one of the few people we can say is like a friend of the podcast because of the consistency with which we literally swap interviews every week these teams play each other because the nice, the other nice thing is like 
it's not to say I don't care about ASU, but it's like, oh, hey, I like ASU's fine. Like, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, like, they're like a friendly other team, not like UW or Oregon or anything. It's like, oh, hey, it's it's Brad, it's Brad Week. I'm going to call it Brad Week from now on. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. And, you know, that's a status that I that I cherish and, and like. But when we get to have you on uh, Speak of the Devils, the preview of the Cougs, and you know, leading into the game, you know, it's always a, always a great time. Something we always look forward to. And yeah, I do think like ASU and Wazoo just have kind of you know some similarities and just kind of in a, in a broad sense. So it's always always a, a welcome sight when they're on the schedule. There's there's some uh, there's some pickled liver kinship. Uh, between those two schools, I, I I feel like, which is which is good. Uh, three and six on the season for ASU. That's obviously, um, I know, you know, it's a disappointment for any team, um, but especially for Arizona State. Um, Herm Edwards has been gone for, I think, a little over a month at this point. It's been an absolutely wild season. Um, you and I were talking before we started here that it sounds like Ray Anderson, the athletic director, is probably on his way out as well. Um, What's the vibe been, man? Because it's, I mean, like, I, I, I look at this and I go, I remember what ASU was with Todd Graham and at the beginning of her Medwards tenure, and this is this is kind of a sight to behold, frankly. Yeah, not not a great one. Uh, so, you know, you go backing up just a few weeks in terms of, uh, you know, after, in, in the kind of hours after ASU was stunned at home to Eastern Michigan, you know, I believe they were like 24-point favorites in that game, whatever. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been covering this program for this is my twelfth season. I'm a Phoenix native, so I've been around the program my whole life. My dad's an ASU grad, so that that time right after the, the Eastern Michigan loss was about the lowest point I could I, I got a sense for this entire fan base, this community. Everybody had had it. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it had been built, going back to just the uh, the summer before or the summer before the uh, 2021 season when. The most hyped season in uh, recent memory, probably since '96, and then all of a sudden you get the NCAA investigation news coming out that puts everything into screeching halt. A bunch of their coordinator or uh, assistant coaches uh, get put on administrative leave as a result, and the, the season just kind of peters out. The eight wins normally is pretty good for ASU, but in terms of everything and the expectations that had been building in year four under Herm. Uh, last year just really kind of uh, put this fan base really on edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not to use a too bad pun, but you know, torches and pitchforks were out for a big segment. Then you start this season the way it, it did, just kind of uh, you know, not playing really well in a, in a loss. In a game I think ASU actually could have won if they had uh, perhaps uh, made some moves that they've since made in terms of the uh, the offensive side of the ball. But uh, And then the, that stunning loss, it was just – and then to make the move to get rid of Herm Edwards, you know, they'll, they'll call it mutual, but it wasn't exactly uh, huh. necessarily, uh, you know, on mutual terms. But you know, just that. So that kind of bought some goodwill for the program, but it was kind of like the old uh, the Breaking Bad thing: no half measures, because Herm was a big part of the I think the issues going on here. But um, as you mentioned, Ray Anderson, the athletic director. A big part of this Sunnyvale fan base is just kind of waiting. That's the other shoot that they want dropped. Um, yeah. Now, while they, they've had some good things, like Sean McGuinnell taking over as head coach, the guy who has tremendous respect inside and outside of that locker room, uh, locally to the community, he was a heralded high school coach for many years as well. Um, you know, that's kind of bought some goodwill. But just right now, it's just a fan base that just almost kind of wants things to be up to, to be the season to be over for Ray Anderson to be out and for a breath of fresh air of whoever this new head coach ultimately is just kind of like just started a whole new chapter because the yeah. last couple have been pretty bad. We'll talk a little bit more about it. I'm going to talk about that coaching search kind of at the end because that's obviously like an overarching thing that doesn't, you know, concern this week. 
um, between these two teams. It's still something I want to touch on with you. Uh, Emery Jones was the starting quarterback uh, at the beginning of the season after Jaden Daniels transferred. Um, now Trenton Bourget has come in and kind of seems to have righted the ship at least a little bit offensively. His numbers certainly look a lot better than Jones's did. Um, what is working for him, Brad? Like I, I see a completion percentage of 75% and I say that's pretty darn good. A yards per attempt of around eight and a half. Also very good. So what's working with Bourget that didn't work with Jones? Well, it, it, there's a couple of factors as uh, factors at play here. Um, so when ASU did make the change that uh, inserted that Borgay in the starting lineup, the same week, uh, Sean Aguano, the interim head coach, uh, who was coaching running backs prior to the Herm Edwards move, um, he took over play calling from offensive coordinator Glenn Thomas. Now, ASU was in a position to, ha- to hire Glenn Thomas because Zach Hill, the previous offensive coordinator, uh, he ultimately had to resign, uh, and I believe it was like uh, mid-late January, tied to the NCAA investigation. So. ASU's pickings were pretty slim, so they hired Thomas, a guy who oversaw a UNLV offense last year that I, I believe oh, ranked around, yeah. yeah, like 110th. So, you know, not exactly the pick of the litter. Um, and so uh, all season long, the offense has been been real pedestrian, real vanilla. ASU does have a lot of talented playmakers at the skill spots. The problem is, for most of the season, they were not getting the ball uh, there was absolutely no creativity. You saw, you know, a couple weeks ago, ASU had a tremendous defensive effort at Stanford, kept them out of the end zone. Uh, but ASU couldn't score for the last 44 minutes yeah. of the game against a pretty not great Stanford defense. Uh, and that was kind of the, the final straw of the uh, Emory Jones uh, and uh, Glenn Thomas era. Now, to Emory's credit, I, I do think that he didn't necessarily get a fair chance to play in an offensive scheme, or at least with a play caller that, maximize his skill set. He's obviously a guy who's uh, a dual threat. He led Florida in rushing last year, um, but he, there's very few, if any, design runs in, in a lot of games this year. Uh, and just kind of stuff, uh, schemes, or play calling, and schematic stuff that just didn't play to the team's strengths. Now, Borgay is kind of on the uh, flip side of Henry Jones in terms of just kind of physical profile. He's about 5'11", 185 or so. It's not physically imposing. But from the neck up, this guy is a future offensive coordinator. Uh, and this is a guy, I mean, he was drawing up playbooks as a kindergartner. I mean, his football IQ is off that might the be, That might, so be, a little, that might be a little early. I want to I see those plays. I want to <laughs> see what he had drawn up as a kindergartner. And then obviously ran on the playground around the slides. <laughs> yeah, I, I did feature on him back when he was uh, still a walk-on and a scout team quarterback. And that was one of the stories that I that kind of ran into because like his, he was drawing up these things in, in class and the teacher was like a little disturbed. He's like, oh, I don't know what this is. Called his dad into class to be like, what is this? Is this like Star Wars stuff? And he's like, you've never seen Star Wars? Took a look at it like, oh, you know, my kindergartner's drawing up, you know, his offense. So that just kind of <laughs> illustrates that this guy, his football IQ, he knows what the other 21 people on the, on the field are doing at any given time. He is, uh, and that really kind of helps offset some of those physical limitations. He doesn't have the strongest arm. Not a, he's, he, can, he can move a little bit, but he's not exactly a threat to mm-hmm. uh, scramble around. But he throws with such great anticipation. Um, he knows he's been getting the ball up to the to his playmakers when the more aggressive play calling of Sean Aguano. Aguano's been using a lot more up-tempo in these last few weeks, and that's really kind of revitalized the Sun Devil offense. I mean, they have, they have two really good tight ends, and Jalen Conyers and Messiah Swinson, uh, for example, in the Stanford game, no targets c- combined between those two. Mm-hmm. And then 
Borgay gets inserted. Ashana Guano is not, not a play caller. All of a sudden, you have Jalen Conyers going for over 100 yards and three touchdowns. Messiah Swenson, a 6'8", 250-pound matchup nightmare. They're all of a sudden getting the ball. You have an emerging wide receiver and Elijah Badger, one of the uh, he's in the top five in most of the receiving categories in the conference. Mm-hmm. Borgay is getting him the ball. Aguano is playing to the strengths. And so that's really helped. Um, you know, I think that partnership of Aguano being more aggressive, trying to use the weapons that are at, at his disposal, and a quarterback who just has the, the savvy, the moxie, and the intelligence in order to do that. So, you know, what we did see that, you know, against some better defenses, you know, <laughs> you can't be playing against Colorado every week. So against a better UCLA defense, you know, there were some, some drives and that you saw some of those limitations maybe float to the surface a little bit. So we'll see what kind of adjustments they can uh, cook up uh, going forward uh, as they're going to be facing some better defenses down the stretch. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a few names there, and I know um, for a lot of Wazoo fans, you know, names like Brandon Ayuk and Eno Benjamin stick out, at least, you know, for me in recent years in terms of really explosive um, playmakers for ASU. So who in that number, um, you know, that number of players that you mentioned kind of is the the one really to look out for. I heard six foot eight, 250 pound tight end. And I, I know I, I watched Rob Gronkowski when I was in college and, but granted that was a very different Wazoo team, but um, who are we looking at in terms of Borgate taking the most advantage of um, on Saturday in Pullman? I would say the, the first uh, guy to watch out for is uh, Elijah Badger, a wide receiver, uh, number two. He's uh, a guy who's came in as a four-star prospect, was academically ineligible his kind of first year. Got a little bit of uh, run a year ago, mostly kind of like gadget plays, but he's really emerged uh, probably over the last six weeks or so especially into just kind of like a, a dynamic do-everything. Like uh, This guy, uh, season's end, I think will be getting some more attention as one of the better receivers in the entire conference. He's a precise route runner, mm-hmm. uh, great hands. He made a, a dazzling one-handed uh, touchdown grab uh, last week, great speed. Um, a better thrown ball by Emory Jones in the last play of the uh, Stanford game. Um, was, like, go, went to Badger, he almost caught it. He, he did catch it, unfortunately his toe was a little bit out of bounds, but uh, a real phenomenal athlete that is uh, really coming into, into his own. Um, so he's been probably the uh, biggest uh, emergence on the outside uh, he's mentioned, you know, Messiah Swinton, the six foot eight, two hundred fifty pounds tight end. Uh, he's uh, he was a Missouri transfer, so he's been uh, coming on a little bit late. But Jalen Conyers is a, a former Oklahoma uh, Sooner wide receiver, basically. But he can, he's now grown up um, as Addison Muscles now playing tight end for ASU. Had three touchdowns for ASU uh, against Colorado. He's not not as big, but he's about six four, two thirty, two forty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tremendous. Um, really dynamic he's able to kind of split up wide they like to use him in a number of different ways he's really kind of come on strong and of course this offense is really kind of uh, built around x validate the wyoming transfer uh who just crossed four thousand career yards uh recently uh five multi-touchdown games on the year they come off a game in, with a uh, career high 10 catches a guy who can really do everything all real workhorse back um so mm-hmm. I, he's going to probably be in a game like this i expect him to probably get another 20 plus touches as well and um, I mean, and then Daniel and God is a guy who likes to spell um, Valaday. He's a shorter, but more explosive back than Valaday. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things kind of just around the uh, ASU media is just we're waiting for Ngata to get more touches because he just, every time he gets the ball, he seems to make something happen. Unfortunately, it seems like even with the, the change to Guano, he's still only getting, you know, like three, four, five touches a, a game. But you know, he could be one of those X-factor types if they uh, decide to start feeding him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. 
Let's go to the other side of the football, and I, you know, you look at Bill Connolly's S and P plus numbers, and ASU does does pretty fine offensively at 49th in the country, but defensively it's 91st um, in the country. And I, I think Brad, just kind of looking at it, you know, for me, I think you know, you see, obviously, I mean, UCLA has been scoring a lot of points on everybody, so that's that's one thing. But um, it, it, what really kind of struck me was the lack of turnovers being generated, and kind of, you know, again, what I'm used to with ASU is they are always around the football and finding ways to force fumbles, to get interceptions. And I think it was it's like 11 turnovers through just nine games. And that, that, that seems low for me. Is that the biggest issue with the defense this year, or is there something else that I'm missing and not seeing here that, that's kind of causing them to be so far behind the offense in terms of success? I think the turnovers is a factor, and I think that kind of speaks to an overall lack of aggression. Um, the right defensive coordinator is Donnie Henderson, who was one of Herm Edwards. He was actually Herm Edwards' uh, defensive coordinator back with the Jets. Um, he initially came to ASU as just kind of in a consultant role, had no vision or no uh, uh, wants to coach. But once last year, when uh, the defensive backs coach Chris Hawkins was put on leave, um, tied to the investigation, Donnie kind of came downstairs and was like, "All right, I'll I'll coach your DBs for a year." Then kind of went back upstairs, and then once Antonio Pierce left to the, for the Raiders, and of course he was kind of a center point of that investigation. Donnie Henderson was elevated, and overall this defense has been plagued by a, just kind of a lack of aggression. Their sack numbers are way down. The tackles for loss numbers are way down. They are just simply not being nearly as disruptive uh, and making plays mm-hmm. uh, as they had been. Like last last year, this was the Pac-12's number two scoring defense. Yep. And a lot of those players came back. They added a number of quality transfers to this mix, but somehow the results are uh, just uh, way less than what they should be. Now, one of the, I think, the biggest and most damning factor for this team so far has been third downs. There's only one team in the country, and that's Colorado, that is a worse on third down conversion percentage than ASU's defense. I think it's right after UCLA went nine for 11 on Saturday. I think ASU is now surrounding like uh, 51%. Earlier this season, USC, I believe, set the Pac-12 record uh, by converting eight of nine third downs. Just ASU's defense cannot get off the field. And I think that really speaks to, they're usually pretty good on first and, and second down. And so, but it's just, there's so many like third and medium, third and longs that ASU consistently gives up. Mm-hmm. There was one drive against UCLA when in the first half when it was uh, ASU was still in that game. Uh, there was but UCLA was able to convert four third downs on one drive, including three that were I believe third and ten plus. Wow! It's just a situation where you have the talent level uh, that ASU does have on defense, and but just they're not doing it well. And so there, and one of the comments in the post game press conference that really kind of struck out to me when Aguano was asked about this was uh, he said that. that you know, we're in third and 12 situations, yet we're playing, you know, 14 yards off the ball. And because you're, you're, the coverages aren't nearly as aggressive or as tight, they're, not, they're playing off man a lot. And mm-hmm. that's just, it's just so many of these third down conversions are just so easy. Yeah. And it's just like for an offense that is still trying to find its way. And you know, it's been a little bit better since those changes, but you know, the offense needs to need some help. And when you're uh, a defense that just cannot get off the field, it's just gonna it's gonna make for some long nights and and situations where that uh, you know just like we saw with UCLA and some of the better offenses that are gonna be coming down the pipe you know the Cougs are coming off a fifty point uh, out, out of their own so if you can't get off the field I mean it's just you're just not gonna win a whole lot of games. I mean yeah that was that was a pretty big point 
you know, I mean, certainly the biggest of the year, and I, I think that's a Stanford team that I think Jake Dickert uh, said pregame in the locker room, um, they warmed up in sweatshirts, they don't want it, and it was very clear they did not want it that day. But this is also a Wazoo offense still kind of trying to find their way a little bit. They got Nakia Watson back last week, which is great, but what does ASU do well? Because, I, you know, I, I know for every, you know, Brad, as a guy rooting for the other team, I love hearing they can, that ASU can't stop third downs. They play off-man a lot like that. They can't force turnovers. What does the defense do well that should give Kook fans a little bit of worry on Saturday? In the middle of the defensive line, uh, they have a pair of really good defensive tackles. And unfortunately for ASU, both of them were kind of really stricken with the flu bug. That it, mm-hmm. it kind of took a, a limited a bunch of key players against UCLA. They're apparently uh, feeling much better and ready to go, but that's um, Nesta Jade Silvera. Uh, he's a Miami transfer. Uh, he's been really good, really active. I mean, he's one of those guys, kind of the Cam Hayward bold, who nonstop motor, and like if he's not making a play at the line of scrimmage, like he's chasing a ball carrier down 8, 9, 15 yards down the field. Like he is a very disruptive player. He's been really impressive to me. I think he's a, probably a Sunday player. Omar Norman Lott also next to him has been pretty good. Um, he's a guy that was kind of filling for Jermaine Lole, who transferred to Louisville. Um, he's been kind of in and out of the lineup, banged up a little bit with injuries, and then, of course, the flu last week. But he can be really quick off the ball, so he's could be a guy that could be pretty disruptive in the middle of the defense. Uh, moving back to linebacker, Kyle Soley mm-hmm. is, a, is a hometown guy. One of the, I believe, he might still be the leading tackle in the conference, even though he's, he had a streak of six straight uh uh, 10 or more tackle games um, but he's a real active real smart guy uh, the, rest, the other linebackers have struggled a little bit um, so far this season but Soli has been really good and one of the cool things is he's in, a, in the starting lineup with his younger brother Connor Soli who I think could be a future star but is kind of struggling a little bit um, so far this year yeah. uh, and then I, I probably the, the, the strength of this defense as I earlier talked about, just kind of the struggles of playing off man. But uh, when given the chance, uh, Roe Torrance has been, uh, I think, one of the best corners in the entire conference. He's an Auburn transfer, six foot four, tremendous size. He is just an absolute force. If he's in the area, he's going to be making a play. He's been really good mm-hmm. all year long. The question has been like, who's going to be that corner opposite him? Tamarcus Davis was the lone kind of returning veteran presence among the corners he's been very bad this year he's been beaten a number of times so we've seen him supplanted in recent weeks by ed woods and even isaiah johnson who's a super talented uh young kid unfortunately has a problem with uh showing up to practice on time so he's it's actually kept him out of a couple <laughs> game situations okay yeah a few weeks ago yeah. like uh he made his first career start was excellent and then that that first practice late to practice so uh that got him in the doghouse. He's slowly working his way out. But um, those three guys, I mean, Roe Torrance especially, I think he's a guy that um, mm-hmm. if he's not in the all-conference first or second team conversation by the end of the year, something went wrong. Um, Ed Woods and, and Isaiah Johnson are, are good young corners who have, I think, bright features if they remain in Tempe. But, yeah, overall, I, those guys have kind of really stood out. But, unfortunately, I think they've been let down by just kind of the, the – the, uh, vanilla play calling that their uh, yeah. DC's putting in. It seems like, and I, 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 I don't like, I haven't looked it up to back it up, but I feel like every time ASU or Arizona for that matter comes to Pullman, it's November and <laughs> it's like 30 degrees at kickoff. And even with a 1230 kick, it's only supposed to be 32 degrees on Saturday. 
uh, in Pullman. So I like I don't know why or how, but who at the Pac-12 has it out for them coming to Pullman? But that's how it always happens. Give me a prediction for how you think this goes um, on Saturday with the Sun Devils making their first trip to Pullman. I think, goodness, it's been it's been four ish years at least. I think four or five years. Yeah, it, it, it has been quite some time, and you know, I'm looking for. I'll be heading up there. It's the the one stadium in the conference I've not yet covered a game, so get to finally check the uh, that off my list. But it's the yeah, pulled pork. Just be... go for the pork shoulder in the media box. Just trust me. Just don't. This just go for that and pile it on your plate. You'll be fine. Oh, okay. That, that's good. See, that's good to know because mm-hmm. I, we were actually talking about this in the in the box of Colorado a couple of weeks because Colorado has a tremendous media spread there asu is just like boiled brats and some flavorless mac Ew. and cheese so yeah. i mean no, getting, to get to explore some of the good stuff we do a little better yeah we do a little better <laughs> uh, so one of the things i'm really interested in is because i think the asu offense with borgay at the helm and aguano um calling the plays and being more aggressive i think that they should be able to get out there and, and you know at least score you know a fair amount I, I, valade is putting together an all-conference caliber season i think that badgers and, and the tight ends are providing some, will provide you know some challenges for any defense in this conference. But my question is just the defense. And, you know, it was a couple weeks ago that you mentioned that uh, you know they kept Stanford out of the end zone, but then just they gave up a lot of points to a Colorado offense, which is nothing short of dreadful. And now um, you know coming off of what you know, giving up 400 rushing yards to UCLA, which yes, a good offense, but I mean that's the most rushing yards that ASU's given up in I believe six or seven years. So just the level of defensive performance versus the level of defensive talent has been really askew all season long. So I have a, a real tough time think, thinking that ASU's defense is going to be able to hold the Cougs, especially now that they have seem to have some good momentum, some players back uh, on the offensive side of the ball. That um, mm-hmm. I just and going on the road in the cold, um, you know, I just have a hard time seeing that ASU, I mean, even if they are able to score a little bit, I just don't know that the defense is going to be able to stop, slow the Cougs down enough for ASU to uh, get a much needed win. Cause ASU of course, at this point needs to uh, sweep the remaining three games to make a bowl game. And mm-hmm. I just don't just at this point, I just don't see it happening. We would normally um, end there, but I do want to talk a little bit about the head coaching search um, at ASU. So we're coming to the end of the season here, and you get rid of Herm Edwards early, and I think it, it probably deserved um, early. You didn't want to wait um, on that one. What are you hearing? What do you know um, about it so far? And just kind of what direction do you think this program needs to point? Because I you know, I think what we talked about earlier, Ray Anderson's probably not going to be here much longer either, so it's probably going to be Michael Crow, the president, um, making any hires here and it needs to happen relatively expediently after the season so where do you want Michael Crow's kind of interview arrow this is the worst metaphor I've ever made but like where do you want what direction do you want Michael Crow pointed in I think ASU needs to resist the temptation of going for a name and going that retread route because that's just something that um, they've tried and it's just not worked and also I it just where this program is currently and kind of just the the potential that it, it has. I don't think it necessarily fits. Kind of you know getting a, a name that some names that have been tossed around like the, the Tom Hermans of the of the world. Um, I, I, that's just I think a route that ASU definitely needs to avoid. I do think that the best course of action is to get a young, offensive minded up and comer, um, a guy that can inject some energy. One of the one of the major failings in the latter Herm years is just he was a guy that just did not understand 
modern college football and everything that went mm-hmm. into it, not even just from a schematic perspective, even though his offenses were, you know, we, we got to a point in the media, we were just kind of hermball is just, you know, it's like he was thinking that he had Curtis Martin back there, run, 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 and maybe hop in a Chad Pennington pass over the top of it here and there. You're, um, you're aging me that I know that, but go on. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, it, it got to a point where I just, in terms of recruiting, NIL, ASU has really kind of been um, kind of lagging in that respect there. Mm-hmm. You, you need somebody that's dynamic and inject some energy into this program because with that NCAA stuff still looming, I mean, there might be some lean years ahead. So if you're going to be bad, at least be exciting and, and have kind of proof of concept. I think there's a couple of guys that kind of fit that bill, but the name that I keep hearing more and more, and especially with what he's been doing up uh, in Eugene, is uh, Kenny Dillingham. The mm-hmm. offensive coordinator up there. He's a Phoenix native. He's an ASU graduate. He was a uh, an offensive coordinator at one of the local high school powerhouses down here. Um, so he has, he's well connected down here as well. He was a, on ASU staff, I believe, in a grad assistant role when Todd Graham was head coach. And of course, he's gone around to, uh, I believe, what uh, Florida State had time there, mm-hmm. Auburn, um, Memphis when Mike Norvell made that transition. There, so he's, and of course, you know, doing what he's been able to do. And anybody who can get Bo Nix to play like he has, based on what we saw for the first few years of the <laughs> Bo Nix experience, that right there is uh, a, a huge uh, uh, sign of endorsement. I, I think that this is a guy that just kind of checks all the boxes because, I mean, you're hearing some of the big, big money donor folks are really keen on him. And to, and to the point where I think lately that Oregon's having so much success, there's a bit of concern of just like, is he getting, is, is he going to be too hot of a name? Is he going to price himself out of ASU's range? So I think ASU, if they're smart, they're working those channels, you know, being a coordinator might be a little bit easier. You don't have to wait for, you know, season end if you're trying to, you know, poach a city head coach, but mm-hmm. it, he is a guy that really kind of fits that bill. I mean, just more and more people I'm getting are down here are just kind of coming along to that. Kenny might be the guy cause he just fits every conceivable thing of the young, energetic, offensive-minded, plus the local ties there that uh, ASU really has kind of been lacking for uh, quite a while. So uh, I think he he's, like at this point, I think the perfect candidate. Yeah, just the, the tape of Bonix before and Bonix after, and the interview is <laughs> probably over. Uh, Brad Denny from Speak of the Devil, thank you as usual, sir, for your thorough uh, preview of the Sun Devils from Tempe. Of course, always a pleasure to talk to you. Head of the week. Um, 
it's always so interesting to see... You know, I, I think a lot of us know that in a lot of parts of life, and I'll get philosophical here for a moment, that it's not always the people who deserve it the most that get the good things that are coming to them, right? You know, life is not always a meritocracy. It's not always about who deserves it the most or is most qualified for it or whatever. And I say this knowing full well that I'm speaking these words into a microphone on election night. But the Colts fired Frank Reich earlier this week, on Monday in fact, and replaced him on an interim basis with Jeff Saturday who has never coached in any capacity in the NFL and has never coached in any capacity in college football. I believe he's dabbled in some high school coaching and he is on ESPN on a somewhat regular basis and I've quite enjoyed his appearances on NFL Live. And this is just an interim job, so you're literally probably just babysitting this team for what's tantamount to half a season, right? But I guess I shouldn't expect any better from Jim Ursay, uh, who's maybe just trying to get a little goodwill back by, you know, employing one of Indianapolis's favorite sons to lead the team for a while. But you can appoint interim coaches who are on your staff, who maybe you're looking to make the leap to head coach, or maybe you're trying to stash someone there to be your next head coach, or you could, you know, pick someone who has been with the team like at all for this year like I think Peyton Manning's been around more than Jeff Saturday at this point um next in line is Andrew Luck probably I just <laughs> it's just another lesson and sometimes the folks who deserve it the most don't get it and it stinks so Jim says my dunderhead of the week for just like like dude like you got people there already. Let somebody do it. Like, it's, it's, I, whatever. Ask Michael at any time. I mean, to be fair to Jim Ursay, this is only like the 10th least logical thing he's ever done in his life, so there's that. Ask Michael anything time at WSUBrady27. Brady, two questions. What is one of your current pet peeves and favorite board or card game and why? I love the game of life. Like the old, uh, like, I don't know if they still make it, the old uh, style one, you know, with the spinner in the middle. Uh, and then, um, oh my gosh, what's the, um, what do you meme? Is a really good one? You put like memes on a little mini easel and it gives you kind of like Cards Against Humanity style prompts uh, to put out there. And then like the person who's, so like, you know, somebody draws the meme and they put it up and then you put your cards out trying to get them to laugh and they pick their favorite one. And then, yeah, you know, I'd like that a lot. Um, current pet peeves, my god, do I just have an unending amount of these. Um, I would just say Tesla drivers, because, so Tesla drivers, at least in Seattle, kind of violate my one rule by and large, in that, like, my rule is, like, if you have a really expensive car, you should probably know how to drive it, and those people generally do know how to drive really well. Um, that is not the case with Tesla drivers. Um, but it's just people, just bad parking in Seattle, especially downtown. Like, if, if you can't park close to, like, make more room for people, um, like, the appropriate amount of cars on a curb, like, that's, that's a big one for me. Uh, at UU, <laughs> Kellen, God, I can't say, it's, it's Wazoo with a U. 
Pick a throwback uniform the Cougs need to rock today. 03 or 97? I go with 97. I love the uh, Washington State across it. And I love, like, anytime you can have a jersey that's a crop top, I'm really digging it. Like, I, I would wear that, and I'm, I'm fat. I, I would wear a crop top jersey. Uh, at Corey Edwards, Wendy in the 509. Underrated brand and video game. Brand and video game? Um, I don't know what you quite mean by brand here, but I think, like, underrated video game, if I had to pick one? Oh, man. Like, of all my old ones? NFL Quarterback Club 98 for the N64 rocked. That was so good. Um, Worms Armageddon on the Sega Dreamcast was also very good. Like, if any of you guys played that, it was excellent. Um, and then I don't think Halo 2 gets the respect that a lot of the other Halo games do. Or maybe I'm mixing it up with the original Halo, but I, I, I think that one too. Uh, at Lil Taco 21, Thomas 69 inches tall, beast and nice. What is the best trashy sit-down restaurant? Example, Olive Garden, and this is quote-unquote trashy, Olive Garden, Applebee's, Chili's, Cheesecake Factory. Ooh, I don't know if I'd throw Cheesecake Factory in there. Like, it's relatively classy-ish. Okay, like, here's how I'll define this. There's a commercial on TV for them. I don't think I've ever seen the Cheesecake Factory advertised. So can we, so is it fair to say we're limiting it to that? I think I'm gonna do that. Um, of them, I would probably go with Olive Garden for the endless salad and breadsticks. Like, that's what I would go with. Like, Outback Steakhouse is probably in there, too. Um, and then I'd probably rate Applebee's second. I don't think I've ever been to a Chili's. I don't think I've actually ever been to a Chili's. Good or bad? Probably good. At Devin Lewis 89 Devin Lewis, what are the most Wazoo events you've attended in one day or one weekend? I remember back in 96 or 97 as a student, Getting to a football game, volleyball game, and a preseason men's basketball game all on one Saturday. Clearly before TV schedules and contracts. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, what is the most I've been to in one day? Probably as probably as a student. And I mean, that's like in my early days, at least again, the football games kind of consistently started um, at two. But in one day, I did two baseball games and a basketball game. That was the day of Taylor Rochester's shot. Uh, against ASU, I PA'd two baseball games, sprinted over to the basketball game in between the baseball games, saw the ending, and then went back over to the baseball game. So like two and a half. Does that count? I kind of feel like it does. Washington State, 34. Arizona State, 21. In front of a great dad's parents weekend crowd in Pullman this weekend. We'll see you guys next week on the Cook Center Hour.